Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing... And I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Colorado Springs police said yesterday that more people were injured in the Club Q shooting than previously thought, and they revised the number of wounded upward to 22. The massacre at the LGBTQ nightclub days before Thanksgiving took five lives and came amid a surge in anti-LGBTQ legislation and rhetoric and threats at drag events. Where is this coming from? How can it be stopped? And is California as queer-friendly as it's made out to be? Forum is next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Many in the LGBTQ community expected another attack on a queer space since the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando six years ago, making the mass shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs on November 19th tragically predictable. The shooting took the lives of five people, Kelly Loving, Derek Rump, Ashley Paw, Raymond Green Vance, and Daniel Aston. And with me now is Daniel Aston's friend, Elizabeth Pixie. Elizabeth, welcome to Forum. And thank you for coming Hi. to talk with us. Hi. I so appreciate you coming on to talk with us about Daniel. I, I'm just so very sorry for your loss. Thank you. Um, yeah. When did you meet Daniel? Um, so... I actually met Daniel on April 3rd of this year. Um, I was fleeing from Texas because of an anti-trans um, law labeling uh, gender-affirming care as uh, child abuse was going into effect, and I was working in healthcare at the time. Um, and so I was kind of like looking in there being direct legal scrutiny on any side of that dice. So I had to flee state. Um, Erin, uh, one of my friends online, uh, I'd reached out to her and uh, it informed me that Colorado was the closest place. Um, I had just gotten out here. I was still scared because I had heard that the area was still pretty conservative. Um, but I had been told that this place called Club Q was great. I was invited out by one of my neighbors who helped me move some stuff in. and. 
Um, I met Daniel. He was working that night. Um, he asked to see my ID. Um, he he was so nice. He was just so amazing. Um, he he looked at my ID. I didn't like. I'm trans. I obviously did not match the ID. Texas did not make changing anything easy. Um, and he saw right away and was just immediately so gender affirming. Um, said that I was the most beautiful woman he'd seen and how could he help me tonight? And it, like, there was this energy about him that just immediately was just, like, safe. Yeah. You said that you hoped he'd be remembered as a martyr. What do you mean by that? Um, when Daniel and I would talk about things, we would talk about um, kind of deeper, more philosophical things sometimes. The idea of us being the kind of people that we are, being kind of kind-hearted people who will go out of our way to help others, and that will expose you to being more likely to find yourself in a situation. Would you be willing to just give your life if you knew that it would make a difference? Um, the idea of martyr, which is the initial core word that comes to mind um, and to my heart, and even after doing some research on my own, just to really kind of check myself to make sure I wasn't thinking um, too passionately or out of line with it, but someone who is willing to die for what they believe in. And Daniel believed in a free and loving future, a and world he, where people didn't have to live in fear. Yeah, and it sounds like he, in his own way, um, at Club Q and the way that he would make people feel safe was one of those those ways. I understand you are now even working more to try and protect others and yourself from harm that you've begun taking emergency medical training. Is that right? Um, absolutely. Um, I've started um, networking with some people, some uh, retired veterans and um, people who are active um, people in the community and allies to the community that work in medical um, to try and put together um, a series of videos, things to help prepare people. Because even though I can't prepare anyone mentally, there is nothing that will mentally, psychologically prepare you for dealing with something like that if you have never been in that kind of situation. But arming people with the knowledge of how to prevent the death of someone next to them, if you, if you happen to find yourself in that situation and you have that knowledge, just having that knowledge and being able to snap out of that shock for half a second can make all the difference in the world. Yeah. It's Do the you... difference between five people in, it's the difference between five people and 20 plus more people with their risks and no more of this. Elizabeth, do you it's feel do you, to start. do you feel less safe now than say a few years ago? 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. A few years ago, I had most of my life set up for me. And even though I was coming from an area that was heavily against Israeli people and growing up Israeli, um, I had built a pretty successful life. And even though I was an ally to a lot of people in the community, I myself was still kind of living this egg life. Um, but the moment where I started to take a look at myself and what was really going on in that hole that I could never fill, no matter how much success I had accomplished, um, I realized like I had to make a choice in that moment. I could take safety and comfort and luxury for the rest of my life, but I would never know what it's like to have the will to live. Or I could take a leap of faith and see what it's like to have the will to live. But in exchange, I have to understand that it would very realistically probably cost me everything. And it did. And I don't regret it. Mm. Um, I think my regret is that I didn't do more before. Do you think you'll go back to Club Q? I imagine the importance of that space existing meant a lot to you. I think it's going to be very hard. Um, there were people that are gone that are really close to me and someone special. So yeah, uh, it's, it's going to to be hard, very hard. Um, I'm going to because I can't let. I know this sounds really stupid, but I can't. I can't let them win. And if I refuse to go back to somewhere because I allowed someone to take something from me, then that's just as good as laying down and just admitting defeat. And admitting defeat in this case is admitting that I don't deserve to exist. And that's not something I will ever stand by. I will always stand by all people have a, a base human right to exist and to live. You've talked about how you and Daniel would have a lot of deep and philosophical conversations. What is your sense of what he would want you to do? How would he want you to respond to what happened or even the broader community? Um, I honestly think that Daniel wouldn't want violence first and foremost, which meant that for me personally, I had to take a huge breath and I had to take time and go, okay, I have to get through a certain level of this before I can even talk to anyone because 
if I'm not in the right space and I'm speaking for myself personally, I'm not doing right by Daniel. Daniel doesn't, Daniel wouldn't want to see more loss. Daniel would want to see, like, the way I see it is on the flip side. If it had been me and not Daniel, how would Daniel have reacted to the situation? And Daniel would have started severely advocating for a lot of things. He was already fairly, like, advocating in his personal community but he just wanted everyone to be able to live and let live to love and let love and the idea that someone who so passionately wanted just love and peace for everyone i'm sorry what what he would want um i'm sorry i'm getting really like personal and distracted here about this. No, it's, it's, I, I, um, <laughs> please don't apologize. What was, what was the question? One more time? I sorry. think you answered it, that he wouldn't want you to, to hurt. Um, and, and he would advocate. Like, and I think that's one of the reasons why, even though I want to like start something, I I would love for everyone to be able to be like trained in self defense, sure. But like, I can't run on that premise. I need to make sure everyone's medically trained. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth, if, if I'm going to be about peace, I can't. I have to stick to that. Well, Elizabeth, I really appreciate you talking with us. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Elizabeth Pixie is the friend of Daniel Aston who was killed in the Colorado Springs Club Q shooting on November 19th. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. We'll look back at the origins of the war on Ukraine with The Guardian's Luke Harding as Russia's assault on the nation grinds on and as the U.S. sends a new round of aid. You can share your questions for him ahead of time at forum at kqed.org. 
Today, in the aftermath of the mass shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs, we're looking at how it has affected those who loved and knew people who were at the club that night, but also if you're LGBTQ or love someone who is, how you have been affected. You can share your responses, your thoughts at forum at kqed.org on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can call us at 866-733-6786, or you can email your comments or questions to forum at kqed.org. Matt in Hayward writes, I'm a gay man living in the Bay Area, but had lived in Colorado for over 25 years. Denver has a very robust and visible LGBTQ community, but Colorado Springs is much more conservative. They have to live with a large number of conservative Christian organizations like Focus on the Family, Spewing Hate. When I heard the news, I thought that probably half the crowd at Club Q was current or former military, and the shooter did not know what he was up against. Also, Colorado has had more than its fair share of mass shootings. Unfortunately, my reaction wasn't shock, wasn't anger, just resignation that it happened again. Joining me now is Joe Yurkeba. They're a reporter for NBC Out, the LGBTQ section of NBC News. Joe, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. You've been reporting in Colorado. How is Colorado's LGBTQ community reacting to this? What are they telling you that has really struck you? Sure. Yeah. Um, I haven't been in Colorado, but I've been speaking with a lot of the locals there. Um, And one of them, Parker Gray, kind of captured what I've heard from pretty much everyone, which is that people are going back and forth between being devastated, heartbroken and angry Um, because a lot of them, you know, this was their home. This was their safe space. And at the same time, they said they felt like they saw this coming. So we heard a little bit about Daniel Aston just before the break. What else can you tell us about any of the other four who were killed that night? Yeah, sure. So um, Daniel, Elizabeth told you a bit about him, but his mom, Sabrina Aston, also told the Associated Press that he loved to make people laugh. Even as a child, he would dress up in these wild costumes and weird hats. Um, And he actually moved to Colorado Springs to be closer to his parents. Um, And his mom said that she and his father would go see him perform at Club Q um, and that he, quote, lit up a room. Um, And then Derek Rump was a 38-year-old bartender who worked at the club, and one person described him as the glue that held the club together. Um, And he was known for his sass. One person actually told me, uh, it it was was Elizabeth actually, who told me that he had a lot of opinions, but all of them were good. (laughs) Uh, And during the pandemic, when all the performers lost their jobs, he actually at times bought other people's groceries um, for months. Um, And then there was Kelly Loving, who was 40, uh, and her friend, Natalie Skye Bingham, told NBC that Kelly could be intimidating because she was so gorgeous. Um, And she described Kelly as her trans mother uh, because Kelly is trans and helped Natalie navigate uh, her transition as well. And then there was Ashley Paw, who was 35, Poe, apologies. Um, And her sister, Stephanie Clark, told NBC News that she was a loving mother and wife. Um, She has an 11-year-old daughter who is devastated, um, obviously, by her loss. And she was in Colorado Springs only on a day trip after she spent the day shopping with a friend. Mm. Um, And then we had Raymond Raymond Green Vance, uh, who was 22. He was there with his girlfriend, Cassie Fierro, and her family 
Um, and Cassie wrote in a Facebook post that he was the most hilarious and most loving human. Um, and his mother, Adriana Vance, uh, told NBC News that she wants people to remember her son as a, quote, tall, handsome, and gentle giant. Um, so, yeah, their loved ones are really are, are really grieving their loss at this time. Have you heard the sentiment we heard from uh, a listener who said resignation that it happened again, that it was not surprising that this happened, though it doesn't make it any less horrific? Yes. Yeah. Um, that's something that I've heard from a lot of people um, and have even talked about with my own colleagues. Um, you know, in the spring of 2021 was when we saw this wave of anti-LGBTQ legislation um, like we've never seen before. Um, and we just talked about, you know, what is going to be the outcome of this. And then there was um, the rise of pedophile and groomer rhetoric um, that's being used to falsely paint drag performers and other LGBTQ people and teachers as um, trying to prey on children by being inclusive. Um, so with the rise of all of that, um, a lot of people have told me, you know, that they kind of felt the tragedy coming. The shooter, as I understand, has been charged not only uh, with the killings, but also with a bias motivation. Can you tell us a little bit about about that and what we might know about the shooter at this point? Sure, yeah. So um, bias-motivated crimes is another term for hate crimes. Um, so this would be additional penalties on top of um, the murder charges. Um, and as far as we know, you know, we only know that those charges have been brought. Uh, the police actually haven't said anything else about the alleged shooter's motive. Um, so we don't really know, you know, if the shooter said anything or the alleged sh shooter said anything to police, um, if there was anything online. What we do know so far um, is that a friend um, of the suspect uh, told uh, multiple news outlets um, that he had heard um, the suspect uh, make homophobic comments um, repeatedly. Um, so there was a history of homophobic and racist comments um, coming from the suspect. Um, and he also described uh, the suspect as having a really wicked temper um, and being quick to anger. Uh, so we're still, you know, waiting on a lot of information. There's, a, there's more that we don't know than we do know at this point. Um, but that's what we have so far. How have people been reacting to the shooter being described by their attorney as non-binary? Yeah, there's a mix of reactions here, and I've been following this closely over the last few days. Um, it seems like people are, are split into a few different uh, camps. You have people who say, you know, we just need to recognize this and use the pronouns that they've requested and move on. Um, and then you have people who are, you know, really against that and say that this is absolutely a trolling effort um, and that we should not recognize this um, and that this is an, a, a, an effort to do more harm to the community. Um, and then you have people who have a mixture of those kinds of views or some people who think that this could be an effort from the attorneys um, to sort of get rid of the hate crime charges. Um, even though lawyers have said that, you know, th it likely won't have an effect on the hate crime charges. Um, but people are, are, you know, feeling a lot of things and feeling really conflicted because this challenges the community, um, which generally advocates for just accepting people's self-identification. This challenges that. Um, and so it's it's really complicated. Yeah. Joe Yurkeva is a reporter at NBC Out. 
we're talking about the aftermath of the mass shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation. How have you been processing the Club Q shooting? How is it affecting you? Have you felt like you have noticed anti-LGBTQ rhetoric? What in its current state concerns you? Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Call us at 866-733-6786. Let me go to Tim. Hi, Tim in San Francisco. You're on. Hi, good morning. I hope I articulate this uh, well. Um, Nothing has changed as far as what is going on. And one thing that we need to address or we have to address and we have to start calling it out for what it is, is the right wing conservative terrorists that that are encouraged in this country. This this is something that is that is all this time. I, I'm a 52 year old man. I lived through AIDS and this the same um uh, rhetoric keeps coming up time and time again that we're evil, that we're pedophiles, that we're sins against God. And we are an easy scapegoat. But what that does is it it, it infuriates and it, it drives these white Christian conservative men to think that it's okay to bring a firearm into um, a safe place in um, – uh, I, I don't. It, it's it's where we go to gather and to be with one another, and to it, it's it's fine for these terrorists, these white conservative Christian terrorists, and we need to start naming it because if we can't start calling them what they are, and what they and and calling them massacres, which I'm glad you did do at the beginning of the show, but that's what these are. These are. It's more than a hate crime. Um, these are encouraged crimes and. You know, um, going back to uh, I'll just bring up a little just a little anecdote really quick. Um, I work for a uh, I work construction and um, there was it was a couple of years ago there. I, I, I was a witness to an accident where about a seven or eight year old boy was was hurt very badly. Uh, by a car that struck him while he was on his bike. Well, his endorphins kicked in and he started running around, even though his face was swollen. And I could tell he was physically hurt. So I, I said, okay, sit. You know, I pushed him up against the wall and told him to sit down. And I, I had my hand on his chest so that he wouldn't jump up and he wouldn't hurt himself anymore until the ambulance came. I told that story to my coworkers the next day, like, you know, you're never going to believe what happened, you know, while I was out in the field. And the first thing that my coworkers said to me was, ha, I knew you liked touching little boys. I knew it. Yeah. Oh, Tim. He said I'm that s- to a... Yeah. So I'm, this yeah. is a Christian man. This is a Christian man. These are... The, the Christians are the terrorists in this country. And Tim, they I have am... terrorists since they have beginning... Since they began the religion. They have been a warring religion since the beginning. I am so, so incredibly sorry uh, that that happened to you. And uh, Joe Yerkeba, you were mentioning that this, the, our current climate of anti-LGBTQ legislation and rhetoric, where is it coming from? Tim feels very strongly it's white Christian conservatives. Yeah, um, so I think there are a lot of different answers to this, but I have heard from experts myself and advocates um, that a lot of this legislation is being supported 
by um, large conservative Christian groups such as Focus on the Family, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Um, and the example I always give is that in all of the states that have considered bills to ban gender affirming care, all of the bills have the exact same name. It's the Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act or the SAFE Act. And the text in them is nearly identical. Um, and that's because they, they often get them from these conservative Christian groups, um, which just kind of circulate this legislation to any of the Republican legislators that they have connections with. Um, so it's definitely in part coming from these incredibly well-funded large conservative Christian organizations. Um, but I also think it's coming from, you know, growing anti-LGBTQ sentiment after um, achieving marriage equality. Um, and this has been happening, you know, since 2015, since, uh, since we achieved marriage equality. And the narrative that you feel like underlies or the ideas or views that you feel like underlie these pieces of legislation, what are they? Uh, so I think the the main view of the but behind the bills focused on gender affirming care is that the care is experiment is experimentation, which is in the name. So it's experimental that there's not a lot of research backing it up. Um, that children who are trans are making a decision that they'll later regret. Um, and so these are all based on myths and disinformation about gender affirming care, when in reality, um, all of the opposite things are true, uh, that this is care that has been used for cisgender kids who experience precocious or early puberty for decades. Um, hormone therapy is also used for young people um, to treat other conditions. Um, and, uh, you know, the claims that many young people come to detransition has been disproven by um, multiple studies now. Um, so where it's really coming from is just, you know, this widespread disinformation. Um, and that can be, you know, advocates have told me that can be really hard to combat when you have people with really large megaphones, um, you know, helping to spread it, such as conservative commentators like Tucker Carlson and Matt Walsh. Hmm. Well, let me play a voicemail that we got from Robert in San Francisco. Uh, this is Robert in San Francisco. I came out in New York in 1985 when I walked into a gay bar in Greenwich Village, and then the whole world went to Technicolor. Despite this current anti-LGBTQ rhetoric, gay culture is alive and well and kicking here in the United States, especially with leaders like Pete Buttigieg, Transportation Secretary, Governor Jared Polis in Colorado, Senator Scott Weiner in San Francisco, and Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, many successful people. What's more, the Senate just passed the Respect for Marriage Act. It's expected to pass the House and soon be signed into law. We have come a long way, baby, to get where we have to today. Robert mentions there the Respect for Marriage Act, which would require that people be considered married in any state as long as the marriage was valid in the state where it was performed and repealed the Defense of Marriage Act, which still remained on the books even though it had been declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. It's making me wonder if you think we're seeing a backlash for LGBTQ gains. Do you get this question a lot, Joe? 
Yes, um, I definitely get it a lot. And uh, the I've asked advocates this question myself, um, and they have a lot of varying views. And some of them do believe that it is in part a backlash to marriage equality. Um, but people also believe that, you know, this sentiment has just been there and has been brewing. The Alliance Defending Freedom, for example, is a decades old organization that receives, you know, millions of dollars in donations every year. Um, so they believe that this sentiment has always been there and is now, you know, just getting sort of the attention um, that it's always sought. Um, so what is really happening, they say, is less of a backlash and just more that this is um, that the right people have now paid attention, um, that there's enough money for the cause, um, things like that. What do you think the, the media we get wrong when we're trying to talk about the rhetoric, the legislation and the incidents um, and the horrific massacres like the one that happened in Colorado? I think part of it is um, what is what I often see happening is that uh, there's an effort to do a 50-50 split um, when covering something, right? So people want to uh, speak to both um, people in favor of gender-affirming care for minors, doctors. Um, they mention that all major medical associations um, in the United States support this care um, and say that it's necessary care. Um, but then there's also this um, desire to give the exact same amount um, of space to people who oppose gender-affirming care, when in reality, um, they are a small minority. Um, I think that that is sort of the key thing that I've seen, is that people, there's a misrepresentation of what um, the sides of this issue actually look like. And it also feels like so much of, even in the example that you that you give, has been focused on the trans community, do you feel like the tenor is is very anti-trans? Yes, absolutely. Um, and this has been brewing for years as well. You know, since 2015, 2016, when we saw the first uh, bathroom bills in North Carolina and Texas, which would have barred trans people um, from using the restrooms of their gender identity. And that has only escalated. Um, and I think that that is in part due to, you know, increased visibility of the trans community. We have people like Elliot Page and Laverne Cox. Um, and with that increased visibility can also, you know, contribute to that backlash. We're talking with Joe Yurkeva, reporter at NBC Out, the LGBTQ section of NBC News. We're talking in the aftermath of the mass shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs and the current context of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and violence in the U.S. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with how it is affecting you, your questions for Joe. You can email them to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum. And you can always give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Joe Yurkeba, their reporter for NBC Out, the LGBTQ section of NBC News, about the anti-LGBTQ narrative and legislation in the U.S. in the wake of the mass shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs. Many LGBTQ people also feel under threat in parts of California, though, as well. And joining me now is Nick Vargas, Director of Development and Strategy at The Source, LGBT Plus Center in Visalia. Nick, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I I understand you've lived in San Francisco for decades, and you live now in Visalia. You've said that you deal with things in Visalia and other parts of the Central Valley that people in San Francisco or Los Angeles often don't think about. What do you mean by that? Sure. So I grew up here in Visalia in the 90s, very conservative then, still conservative now, but I knew that being a a gay person, I wanted to live somewhere else. So I studied really hard to escape and went to Stanford University. And being in Stanford and then moving to the city, it was everything I thought it would be versus my hometown. I could be out. I had, you know, places I could go that were were queer. I had friends. I had, you know, I could date. And, you know, when I would return home for holidays, I would still see, like, still very conservative. I'd go back into the closet, essentially, except to my family. So, you know, uh, having lived in San Francisco for, you know, nearly 20 years and coming back as an adult, I, I noticed that it was an adjustment again. There weren't any queer spaces. You know, the only way to meet people was online, uh, online apps, which isn't, you know, always the healthiest for me, you know, talking to my doctor about PrEP, which is a medication you can take uh, to prevent HIV, uh, I had to educate my doctor on what that was. And it was, you know, it was coming home was like going 10 years, 15 years back in time. Now with what I've just been talking about with Joe, the current state of the the rhetoric, this incident in Colorado Springs, the anti-LGBTQ legislation, has it created a sense of feeling less safe? And has that affected even less safe than you than it has been for you? And has it affected the way your organization, say, puts on events and so on? Yes. So these events like Cup Q, like Pulse, they remind us that we're in an area, we're surrounded in a red area, very conservative area, um, sometimes called where we're at the Bible Belt of California. We're surrounded by people who don't want us to be here, who will write op-eds to the paper that get published uh you know you know with these rhetorics these anti lgbtq rhetoric that it does make us feel less safe it does make us think about our events we host the local pride event here and 2500 3000 people show up and this last year we always think about security but this last year like 
what if this rhetoric, it was an election year, what if this rhetoric, mm. you know, encourages somebody who is on that that fringe to come and disrupt the event, to be violent at the event. So we upped our security. We had wands out, you know, and it's just, it's something I wish we didn't have to think about here. You know, we already are uh, a minority here. LGBTQ plus people are a minority here, but things like Club Q remind us that uh, we're a targeted minority. Do you think the view of California as an LGBTQ-friendly state can sometimes undermine the support and recognition of people living in parts of California that are less safe? Yes. Yes. We um, Sometimes we feel forgotten by uh, San Francisco and L.A., like those blue parts. And people think, oh, it's California. It's queer-friendly. You know, that is not the case here, you know. Uh, my husband doesn't feel comfortable holding my hand in public. Um, you know, when we went to San Francisco one time, he did, which was so nice. But, and we're not unusual here. I hear that story from other same sex couples. The, you know, California has laws and policies on the books that are very LGBTQ plus affirming that, you know, sometimes in our school districts aren't. Uh, applied the way they are in other parts of the state. You know, it's, or, you know, there's, there is this vibe of the area of feeling different. I feel, when I traveled back uh, to the Midwest last year, we were in some very rural parts of Arkansas and Missouri, and it almost felt the same there as it does here in California versus LA and San Francisco. We're talking with Nick Vargas, co-founder and director of development and strategy at the Source LGBT Plus Center in Vaselia. Let me go to caller Lynn in San Mateo. Hi, Lynn. You're on. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Thanks for having this program. Um, I called in because I'm the mom of a non-binary teen, and uh, it's a learning process for me, um, and it's all been, you know, been, been wonderful. But then I hear about the violence that takes place out in the world beyond what I feel is our bubble, and I'm, I'm very, very worried. Um, you know, on the one hand, I'm, I'm hopeful. I was telling the person who did the intake to the call that my, my kiddo has been attending a summer camp for several years in Southern California called Brave Trails. So it's a shout-out to Brave Trails. It's a, an LGBTQ plus leadership camp wonderful but life is not summer camp and um i I worry about their well-being my kiddos well-being they'll be in college in a couple years and i want to i want to do what i can say what i can be what i can to help um you know be impactful so it it's a safer place when they're when they go out in the world i I, i'm beside myself when i hear these about these incidents and i i I just worry anyway i thought i'd call in I appreciate that, Lynn. Thank you for calling in. Joe Yurkeba, what have LGBTQ plus advocates shared or members of the community shared that they hope allies will do in the aftermath of the Colorado shooting? I think um, the main thing I've heard is um, that 
the community just wants to hear more from allies. Um, I yesterday was listening to uh, another radio program and the Reverend Remington Johnson, who is a um, nurse and advocate in Texas, said that, you know, when the fight over marriage equality was happening, that there was an uproar from both allies, from the entire queer community, and that when the legislation targeting trans people began, um, she just felt like it was silent um, from the majority of the queer community and a lot of allies. Um, and she said that they felt like in Texas, they were standing out there alone. Um, and so I think that that's the main thing I've heard is people just want to hear from allies and they want them to turn up um, in support of, you know, the cause. Um, and so yeah. that's what they're they're really looking for. There have also been several attacks on drag events. Can you talk a little bit about that and also the reaction? Sure. Yes. So GLAD, an LGBTQ nonprofit, recently published research that there have been 140 um, attacks or targeting of drag performances across the U.S. this year. Um, and that has really amped up, um, especially over the last uh, two or so years with this rhetoric um, that labels uh, drag story uh, hour readers um, and performers as pedophiles and groomers. Um, it has gotten so extreme that um, white nationalist organizations such as the Proud Boys have showed up to some of these libraries and story hours um, armed with weapons. Uh, so it's really escalated over the last two years. Well, this listener writes, I'm a queer man who works in construction in Oakland. I am a strong supporter of trans rights. If you're looking for motivation for the current wave of anti-LGBTQ hate, look no further than the recent growth of trans rights and visibility. My coworkers, many of whom vote Democrat, Democrat and say they have no problem with gay people writ large, are united in their opposition to trans people. This distinction sadly must be addressed head on. Nick, I'm wondering if if the anti-trans rhetoric uh, that you've noticed in Veselia uh, if some of the things that you're hearing our listeners talk about and what we talked about related to that targeting you've seen in Visalian, what kind of tenor it takes? Yeah, when it comes to gender and gender identity, it it hits a nerve with even some of our allies. And uh, anecdotally, I have uh, a friend who is a very strong ally who's fundraised for us, and uh, she got into some a TikTok uh, funnel, if you will, lots of anti-trans uh, videos. And she was sharing these and posting these. And, you know, if somebody who's close to us and, you know, who knows queer people, knows trans people too, is, you know, starting to hear these messages and share these messages and believe these messages, you know, it it is worrisome to us. It is, there is something about gender and gender identity that, really, uh, you know, that people have a hard time wrapping their heads around that. It brings up this fear that can turn, unfortunately, to hate. We're talking with Nick Vargas of the Source LGBT Plus Center in Visalia, Joe Yurkeba of NBC, out. And we are talking about the mass shooting at Club Q, the current context and focus in anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and legislation. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Brittany writes, my sincere condolences for all affected by this tragedy. The stark reality is no one is safe. Our elementary age children, our protesters, our LGBTQ community, these violent people may target and discriminate. 
But these terrible people will find any reason to target any community. You know, Joe, often after the targeting of LGBTQ people or targeting of any group, we begin talking about resilience. Um, Why have the queer and trans people you've spoken to pushed back against that term somewhat? Yeah, um, because they have said, you know, they're tired of having to be resilient, um, that they're exhausted, Um, especially, you know, trans advocates I've spoken with in Texas, um, like the reverend I just mentioned. um, In 2021, Texas considered more than 50 anti-trans bills more than any other state. Um, Moms there uh, who I've kept in touch with Um, you know, feel traumatized from having to go to the Capitol sometimes with their children to testify against those bills. Um, And so, you know, what you're seeing, I think, is um, that people are just exhausted. They're tired of of having to be resilient. um, And what they really want to feel is supported um, and validated um, and accepted. Let me go to caller Barbara and San Rafael. Barbara, you're on. Well, I noticed one of the callers was uh, attributing all of the problems with the LGBT community to right-wing conservative Christians, only he didn't just say conservative Christians, he said Christians. And I would like to say that um, that is not true of Christianity. That's true of right-wing conservative Christians and not true of Christians in general. And it's very much a mistake to lump everything together. In fact, the right-wing conservative branch of almost every religion and possibly even politically is responsible for the violence and the exclusion of many groups. And we shouldn't just lump every group together. And Mm -hmm. The Christian groups of um, the mainstream Christian groups have many gay pastors and are very supportive of the um, LGBT community. And we shouldn't just lump everything together. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate your call, Barbara. Joe, what's your thought on that? Um, I absolutely see um, what she's saying. You know, um, I know that here in North Carolina myself, um, I've seen many more LGBTQ people go into um, religion and want to become pastors. Um, There's, you know, also the Reverend I mentioned again, um, who is a huge advocate of, you know, people being able to find safety and love and acceptance um, in religion. So I think that that is absolutely sort of a space where, Um, the community generally could recognize more is that like, I think a lot of um, what you'd think of as mainstream or most Christians actually oppose a lot of this rhetoric. Um, And, you know, we have, there are uh, groups that are dedicated to that now. There are religious groups who um, want to stand for uh, LGBTQ plus rights. So I think that there definitely is um, a misconception there that really all Christians hold this view when polls tell us that in reality, you know, the majority of people support trans rights, the majority of people support marriage quality. Yeah, Nick, I before you came on, I'd asked Joe about whether or not broader sentiment in our country um, is still very much in favor of expanding LGBTQ rights and that it's just that certain voices are being amplified. So it feels like there's there's been a backlash or more people are anti-LGBTQ than is the reality. What do you think about that? Yes, I think uh, certainly there is more support for LGBTQ rights, then there, you know, are detractors. 
And of course, you know, those loud, vocal, crazy detractors are what are going to get clicks. We're going to get people to, you know, interact with an article. And so that they get airtime, they get, and, but it's important. They, that is a voice and it is a voice that incites violence. So it's, you know, we need to be aware of that, but also, I mean, I take heart in knowing that, uh, People who in the past were against uh, same-sex marriage have come around. You know, in, in our area, you know, there are some uh, small, open, and affirming churches. The Source, the organization uh, I helped found and work for, was founded uh, in a church. So, you know, they, we do have broad support, but there there is this uptick and this highlight of these uh, anti-LGBTQ voices. What did the source do in the immediate aftermath of Colorado Springs, Nick? So that morning, woke up and, and saw that difficult news, and our first reaction was to create a space for people to come together and, you know, mourn, heal, find comfort. So we had a candlelight vigil at our center, which is the only uh the only queer space in our area. And we had people show up and, you know, we had some, uh, we had said some words, we had drumming, and then people got a chance to talk with each other and then get, if they needed to referral to other resources. I asked Joe this earlier as well about what you hope allies do in the aftermath. What would you like to see? You know, I love our allies. They, in our area, they've been so supportive. And I would love to just see more of that. When allies hear somebody making anti-LGBTQ comments or sharing something anti-LGBT, that's if they are in a place where they can, uh, you know, speak against that, they can educate somebody, they can share their experience, that helps. I'd also love to continue seeing allies, you know, support queer orgs. Um, some of our best supporters are our allies, and it really says something. It really helps, and it, you know, shows our queer kids and our, our trans youth that they have support from adults, both, you know, emotional support, financial support, and, and that makes a difference. Nick Vargas, co-founder and director of development and strategy at the Source LGBT Plus Center in Visalia. Thank you. Joe Yurkeba, reporter at NBC Out, the LGBTQ section of NBC News. Thank you as well. And my deepest gratitude to our producer, Caroline Smith, who produced today's segment, and to our listeners who shared just how they are being affected and what their hopes are in the aftermath of Colorado Springs. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.